the creating a space episode is 55 minutes and 22 seconds. I th- we're going to be we're going to be really close to that. This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Reed Dent. He's been on staff with Campus Christian Fellowship at Truman State University in Missouri for the last 12 years. He and his wife, Leanne, have three boys who provide some great sermon illustrations in my experience. Reed, welcome. <laughs> Hi, thanks uh, for having me. It's good to be here. I was hoping, I don't know if Marty has anything else he wants to start with, but I was hoping that you could maybe just tell us a little bit about who you are, kind of your backstory, how you got into Mm. ministry, your passions, whatever you want to share about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Um, So I am a campus minister at Truman State University, uh, which is in rural Northeast Missouri. And um, Truman State, Truman State University. Okay, so just official nomenclature here. It's either Truman State University or Truman, but it's never Truman State, says the university. So uh, there, it's a liberal arts school up here. Uh, A lot of smart kids, a lot of bookish kind of kids who love to overachieve and get straight A's. Lots of thinky types. Um, I was one of them. Went to school here. uh, Graduated way back yonder in 2007 and uh, started at CCF a year later. So I was a student here at the ministry before I started working here. Um, I have a degree in English, which um, several people have told me it doesn't maybe seems largely pointless when it comes to uh, ministry. Um, but I don't know, maybe some of the things we're going to talk about today will show that it actually has value um, in terms of you know just how we read the Bible and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I've been here on staff for 12 years, work with a, a team of five other people. Marty knows them all. Um, he, he loves us all. Uh, and I do some of the preaching here, um, some men's discipleship type stuff. Um, I read out loud to people, which Marty thinks is really weird. Um, but it's actually so weird. What do you mean so read weird. out loud? Um, so I, I, I mean that I read out loud to people. Um, Marty actually thought it was really weird. One of the first times he came here, he watched me um, having like some of our student leaders were in what we call a coaching group where uh, they kind of meet with a staff person every week and we talk through whatever it is that they have going on ministry wise. Um, and there's also a discipleship component to that. And so I sat out in the backyard and was reading to them from something. I don't remember what it was, but it was probably a solid 15 or 20 minutes straight of reading and then listening. And Marty was like, I just don't see how that actually works as a campus ministry thing. And yet somehow it does seem to work. Um, so like, like a bedtime story, but for students, no, no, no. I mean, it ranges like, uh, sometimes I read, um, poetry. Sometimes I read theology. Sometimes, uh, we do a media fast every semester for a week. Um, it's our cool countercultural revolutionary kind of thing, um, where we unplug from all of our devices for a week. And, uh, there's this place on campus called the sunken garden. And I read students picture books, um, as a substitute for Netflix, because picture books, shout out, are way more awesome than people give them credit for. But I'm, any anything, really, I love to read out loud to people um, to sit and think together and just to hear and not always to have to just discuss and analyze and whatnot. 
So that's a part of what we do here. Um, actually, Marty got really uncomfortable one time because Derek, uh, who I work with, a good friend of mine, we were walking with Marty uh, from the CCF house to my house, and we were just reading out loud as we were walking, and Marty was getting really uncomfortable because... Well, he just thinks that's weird, but also it was making him have emotions, and Marty's not really accustomed to having emotions, Um, and so he was uh, a little bit despising us because we were making him feel things, Um, but you can ask him about that later. That's really his story to tell. What is is taking place right now? This is... This is... This is my podcast. Like, what's happening right now? I just... I'm sitting back here listening what is what is going on i'm so confused are you having the emotions now <laughs> some different emotions sure <laughs> that's great okay so 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 enough about enough about this like marty feeling things emotions let's get back to like where reed comes from let me let me ask yeah, the next question here ahead. how did you get to know just briefly tell people like how did we even get connected because oh I, I yeah w- it's a great story i will say reed's one of probably has become one of my best friends. So how did that uh, how did that take off? Yeah, did, Reed, no. did Reed find Bama or did Marty find Reed? I found Marty and I didn't know that Bama was a thing, um, which I think it probably was a thing at that point, Marty, but I don't actually know the full timeline. It wasn't far, like we hadn't been doing it for a long time. So it was a thing, but it wasn't like the thing it is now. Yeah, so Marty and I um, both live in the campus ministry world and we were at a conference together and Marty was doing a workshop uh, and it was about his whole East West thing, um, that you guys covered like way back in session zero or whatever it was. Uh, and I thought it was really awesome. Um, I mean, I love the conference and everything, but you know, not all workshops are radically cool in the way that Marty's was. Uh, and so I have a thing where if I find somebody who just really intrigues me or that I want to have a conversation with, I will just basically make them have a meal with me. So I came up to Marty afterwards and I said, you and I need to talk. Uh, and we, we later that night at dinner, uh, grabbed our food and then went to some side room and talked for quite a while. Um, and that was the beginning of it. And then I think I probably sent Marty some messages like on Facebook before I was cool enough to get his phone number. And uh, we carried on some conversations about things and it kind of blossomed from there. And he has been to our campus ministry a number of times, uh, has preached at services and retreats, um, has stolen a few ideas from me that he didn't give me enough credit for, of course. And, um, you know, we've become good friends from there, uh, which leads us to me here finally having my dreams come true, being on the Baymont podcast. (laughs) Dreams come true. Oh, man. I did want to ask, actually, specifically about two sermons that we have linked to of yours. We've uh we've linked to your sermon on the parable of the unforgiving servant and the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think that's because maybe Marty can correct me if there's more to it than this. But I feel like those sermons uh, had some sort of particular teaching or particular way of teaching the story uh, that was unique in some way uh, that struck a chord with him. And I'm wondering if you have any... Like, are, are those particular parables uh, ones that are special to you or or are they just, yeah, that's just what I was teaching and 
and God used it con- to connect to Marty in a way that I didn't really intend or like what, what's the what's the backstory on those two stories? That's a good question. Um, I think there was just some good timing in terms of your podcast when you were recording and when we were doing those sermons and also just where Marty's and my uh, friendship was at at that point because I remember just telling him about some of the things and I would you know we would text or call and talk about some of the questions regarding those parables um, and some of you know those conversations made their way into the sermons uh, and you know Marty liked the sermons and plugged them because that was at the time that you guys happened to be recording those things um, I mean those parables are special to me the unforgiving servant one especially is I mean forgiveness and coming to grips with forgiveness uh, is something that is well I think you know it's at the heart of the Christian message but even just in my own personal experience has been uh, something that's long been grappled with. Uh, and so it means a lot to me, but also just the parables in general, the kind of sideways, uh, slant ways, uh, teaching that Jesus does there. I'm a big fan of the roundabout and not just the direct, let me tell you how it is. Um, which again, we'll probably end up talking some about that when it comes to the way we read the Bible. Um, but yeah, it's the parables in general that I really love. Um, I feel like that whole series, I was kind of just so excited for every sermon, um, so that's, I guess that's kind of the backstory on that one. Yeah. And as far as your kids being a sermon illustration, your son's <laughs> response in the parable of the good Samaritan sermon, uh, like, wow. Uh, <laughs> I know, man. I just, I lost it when I was telling that story. Um, yeah, we, and he, my, my son is like my wife. He has a memory, like a, like a steel trap. And so he's, he still brings that story up and some really good things have come from that. Actually, like we, we do, uh, he was the cause of the inspiration for we, we make these homeless packs that we just keep in our van. So whenever we're driving somewhere, if we see somebody who seems like they're in need, uh, it's, and this is not like an original idea to us, but Briggs was definitely the fire that got it lit for us to do it where it's got, you know, water bottles and gloves and chapstick and band-aids and whatever other, like just basic kind of helpful things that somebody might need. Um, (laughs) actually not long after we recorded that sermon, we were driving through Springfield, Illinois, and there was a guy on the side of the road and, and uh, he was looking for a ride somewhere. He was homeless. And we stopped and talked to him for a bit and gave him one of these packs. And my son, my middle son, Jack, loves nature, loves all things that creep and crawl with like a very deep love. And we were like, hey, man, what's your name? And the guy said his name was Squirrel. And so Jack was like, what? Like, you can just name yourself after an animal? And he just, that was mind blowing to him. And so he has wanted to try to take on animal names ever since. But yeah. Uh, that it's <laughs> beautiful. That was a good time. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, my kids. I lo- I love my kids. They drive me crazy, of course. But you know, they are sometimes just cued into things that we tend to rationalize away as adults. Um, you know, where the truth of what that guy needed and what how we needed to respond to him in St. Louis from that sermon. Uh, he my my son saw it in very plain black and white kind of ways. And I remember after that sermon, I had adults coming up to me and like trying to reason away. Well, you can't trust everybody and you can't help everybody because they'll take advantage of you. And you got to keep that in mind too. And I'm like, yeah, but like, did you hear anything I said? Because what about compassion? What about like being moved in your gut with compassion? And you know, kids, they haven't, 
uh, gone through all the gymnastics to filter all that out. So it's good. Seeking to justify himself, you might say. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good Bible singer right there. I like, <laughs> yeah. if, I like that. If you're listening to us talk to Reed right now and you haven't heard those two sermons, please go listen to those sermons. I, I'll put them in the show notes for this episode. Yeah. Now, now Reed, you're our first like formal... Um, you're our first like formal guest, and I I, I kind of interviewed Brent for the intro to session, but this is our this is our first guest interview here. So in a lot of ways, you're man. Uh, thank you so much. By the way, that's it. Really is an honor. I mean, for as much as I raz Marty a lot about things, like I you know I think what you guys got going on here is really great, and I respect it a lot. And so when Marty said that you guys wanted to have me on, I was like, Are you sure that you don't want to be talking to like Peter Inns or you know? like Rob Bell or something like I'm just a campus minister in Northeast Missouri. So yeah, anyway, it's, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I I mean, in a lot of ways, this is going to be like a, you kind of serve as a Guinea pig. We're going to learn all the things that we want to do, you know, differently in the future. We're going to learn all our mistakes. So uh, Brent, I think uh, if you're taking notes, I think Brent's taking notes on all the mistakes we're, we're kind of making today. And I think our first one, Brent is having read on the podcast. So we'll just put that down. Make sure we don't repeat that error. Just you, and just you, just you. Wait, people. It's not just going to be me listening to this one more than anybody else. It's going to be your entire audience. You're going to be like, why did they play se- session six, episode one, fifteen thousand times per listener? That's wild. It's it is crazy. All right, Reed. Here we go. I'm I'm gonna get I'm get rolling here. We we're here on the Baymont podcast. We talk about the Bible. Like that's kind of our thing. We do we do Bible on this podcast. We've uh we like to take a you might call it a magnifying glass level. Uh, we, we look at things book by book, sometimes even in some of our fun little journeys, verse by verse, trademark. As a, Matthew. <laughs> uh, I listened to all of that one. Uh, as somebody who works at a university surrounded by college students, what are, like, what are some of the common questions that you find there at Truman? Not Truman State. Uh, what are the things that you run into? What's what's the conversation, especially right now? Like, and and we don't like our podcast to be trapped in time, but here we are, right at the turn of twenty twenty one. What's what's going on uh, in your neck of the woods? With what does this mean to you? You know, so at the college level, you have students who are you know leaving home for the first time. Uh, they're getting out from just the plain acceptance of everything their church and their parents taught them, which by the way, is not a, not a bad thing. Like I don't want to dog on that. Um, it's good that we have churches and parents who teach kids things. It's also good that they get out on their own and question those things. Uh, and, and maybe when they get to the university and they're out from, uh, those particular, uh, I guess spheres that they've kind of always run in, they feel maybe a little bit more free to ask some questions that they have long held, Um, I think, you know, a few years ago, it seemed like a lot of the question, uh, a lot of the conversation was surrounding Genesis, uh, and the creation stories and how we're supposed to read those. And, uh, your podcast actually was immensely helpful for a lot of our students. Um, so I would definitely refer people back to those earlier episodes for sure. Um, but I, I think there is like a, you know, it's the... It's the Jesus and Pilate conversation question, um, which is, you know, what is what is truth or really what does it mean for the Bible to be true? What does it mean for anything to be true? And some people say, uh, and I think they're used to a kind of story uh, where truth is, you know, what happened. 
truth is the facts of what happened. Uh, and so as long as something, whether, you know, whether it's a, a poem or whether it's a movie or whether it's like the Bible, as long as it tells us what happened, um, then it is true. But, you know, of course we read the Bible, we open it up and we see all kinds of other things like, what does it mean for, uh, not just this creation story, but like a Psalm, what does it mean for a Psalm to be factual or <laughs> what does it mean for, um, you know, a lament to be verifiable? What does it mean to be true? And so this is a conversation I find myself having a lot with students, um, what does it mean for something to be true? And uh, depending on what kind of a thing it is and the way that it wants to tell us the truth, uh, we maybe have different standards for then saying whether it is, you know, in error. You know, we talk about the Bible being inerrant. Um, and a question that I want to ask is, well, you know, what does it mean for a psalm like that is an expression of either disorientation or of praise? Like, what does it mean for that to be errant or inerrant? And then how do we stretch that out across the whole Bible. And what I found in talking to people uh, is that maybe there are different modes and, and yes, of, of communicating truth. And yes, there is something to the factual and the verifiable and the historical. Like I'm not saying that the Bible contains none of that. Um, but one of the things that's been interesting to see is, you know, when you have conversations with students about that kind of truth, and then maybe you talk to students about a different kind that's not just about the facts, uh, the way that they kind of light up and, and, and you see that uh, there is a diff like different kinds of truth actually matter a lot more than other kinds. So, yes, it can be you know, perfectly true that the Bible was created in six literal 24-hour periods. Like Maybe that was the case. I don't really know. Um, but I find that that's not necessarily a life-changing kind of truth. Uh, but when we talk about how we were all made good, the story that you've talked about and how we have this experience where we are deceived and then we end up being complicit in that and then we end up hiding because we feel afraid and shameful. And that's not just true of the first people, but that's actually true for everyone. Uh, and that's the story that, you know, maybe that uh, part of Genesis is trying to tell. Then people suddenly light up. You know, it's like, a, I use this example with people sometimes. Here's a, here's a big word for you, Marty. Uh, have you heard the word narcissism before? Uh, yeah. This is yeah, not, this yeah. is not, not pointed at you, of course. Um, but, you know, I ask people if they know the word, you know, tell me what narcissism means. And a lot of times, you know, a typical college student, if they're familiar with the word, will give uh, what, what would be classic very Western way of talking about it. Um, so they would say something that would sound very abstract. They would say like, oh, this is like, it's an excessive interest in or an admiration of oneself, or it's like inordinate self-love, or it's a self-centeredness that arises from a failure to distinguish yourself from external objects or something like that, right? And I mean, that could be true, right? It's not that those things are false, but uh, there is another way of defining narcissism uh, that goes back before those definitions where, like, if we think about the myth of Narcissus, right? So here's a guy, and he's walking through, and, and this would be your definition, like your other, maybe your Eastern definition here. Uh, there's, there's a guy named Narcissus, and he's lured to this pool where he catches his own reflection, um, and he, he falls deeply in love with it. 
and he doesn't realize that it's himself, but he falls so in love with it that he sits there for a really long time. And eventually he realizes that it, that it is himself. And then he becomes utterly despondent. Like he's in complete despair because he realizes that he'll never love anything as much as he loves that reflection of himself and he loses the will to live and he kills himself. That's the other definition. So then the the question that I put to them is which of these portrayals of narcissism is factual? Uh, Was there actually somebody named Narcissus who saw a pool and a reflection and got depressed because they loved themselves more than anything and killed themselves? Uh, no, no, there, there was no such factual story, but is it true? Uh, and which of those matters more to you? You know what I'm saying? And people identify with that kind of thing. That's looking not just to describe a phenomenon, uh, or analyze a phenomenon of narcissism, but it's wanting to actually portray or communicate some experience with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and there's and there's like a there's a place for both of those. Like there's definitely a place where I want Merriam Webster to define an idea for me, but I find oftentimes a lot more meaning in these more poetic or maybe eastern or whatever it is we want to call those expressions of the same definition. Yeah, but we have this stigma about them uh where we tend to say like, well those are just stories. You know, uh, the narcissist thing um, or and a lot of times when we're having this conversation about the Bible, um, we're talking about stories that are from like a way long time ago and they're very removed from ourselves. Um, and, and and we think like, you know, people say, well, if the story of whatever, jo- like I've actually had somebody say this where like the story of Jonah, for example, if that story didn't really happen, like how can the sufferings or the triumphs of a fictional character like, how can that actually influence me at all? How can that inspire me? How can that uh, help people who are non-fictional going through non-fictional challenges? And there's kind of a question behind the question that's not just about the characters being fictional, but if they're fictional, then maybe the God that saves them is fictional, or maybe the salvation itself is somehow fictional. Um, But I think what I want to say is uh, that is a stigma that we are bringing to the table a lot of the time. Um, And that's something that we have to deal with. And we can't just kind of force that on the Bible because we want it to be so. Right. And and so I hear you. You're talking about narcissists and then you went to Jonah. So you're and obviously this is what you're doing, but you're suggesting that this is what we need to this is what's happening in the scriptures on some level, the same kind of dance this same kind of invitation into a different way to engage story. Like these aren't just stories. Cause I feel like the, and I, I really like how you're explaining this today. Cause I get this email all the time. Usually happens right about Noah in the, in the podcast and people are like, wait a minute. So did Noah really happen or not? And that makes all the difference in the world for, and because it's either historical or it's just a story, but you're inviting us to realize that truth is a lot of things, including history, but other things as well. Yeah. And the other things I want to say are the things that actually more have the power to, to shape us. Right. Um, so uh, you, I think you've talked about this before. A lot of people have talked about this. Um, the Bible, uh, think of it as a library and, and it's important that we think of it as a library because some people have a hang up where it's like, well, if Noah didn't happen, then how do we know that any of it happened? Like, 
even Jesus, like I, <laughs> I will not name names, but when I was a younger man, uh, and I went to a certain school of ministry down in Dallas, Texas, there was a prominent, um, I guess, creationist apologist who came and spoke at our school. And one of the things he said at the time was, uh, and I'm pretty close to quoting here. He said, if you do not believe that the world and everything and the universe and everything in it was created in six literal 24 hour periods of time, then you cannot believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And like at the time I was like, wow, that feels really heavy and kind of terrifying. And I didn't know what to say to that, but you know, I felt like, oh gosh, like that can't be right. Right. And because that statement basically doesn't see the Bible as a library. It sees it as this uniform thing that is the same kind of thing all the way through. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, like they naturally kind of assume that. And so one of the th- conversations that I find myself having with people is like, okay, look at the Bible, not as one thing, but as a collection of things. Uh, and when you walk into a library, right. Um, as I often do on campus at Truman, Uh, If you want to find out information about something, you can go to any number of places, right? Any number of sections. Uh, So so imagine that you want to know something about uh, 9-11. This is an example that I'll use with people, like September 11th. And if I go to the periodical section, um, I might find um, uh, an article or the, the front page of the Wall Street Journal from September 12th. 2001, the day after the attacks. And actually I have, and I've looked this up and I use this with people. Uh, So there's a chart there that just has um, a map of the Eastern seaboard of the U S and then there are all these kind of bullet points of where the flights, you know, what, what, where they left from, where they were going. So it's like Boston, American airlines flight 11. Uh, There's a Boeing 757. It leaves Boston at 759 Eastern daylight time for Los Angeles. And it has 92 people on board, including 11 crew. uh, And it's the first plane to hit the world trade center. Right. Um, And the thing is what, if, if, if it's actually the case that there were 85 people on that plane or that it left at 803 instead of 759, uh, or if it was flight, you know, 21 instead of flight 11, then I would say, well, this, this article is false in some sense, right? Because it's trying to tell me these facts uh, and it's getting them wrong. But if I go to the poetry section um, and I, I pull out a book and there's a, there's a poet that I really like uh, named Scott Cairns. Um, and uh, he, he wrote a poem called September 11th. And if I go to his book and I open up and I read that poem, uh, and it says something like, um, can I just, can I indulge? Can I read just like one stanza of the poem? Please do. Please, please read out loud on this podcast. Read. Oh yes. Finally. Uh, actually here's the whole poem. It's really short. He says, according to the promise we had known we would be led and that the ancient God would deign to make his hidden presence shown by column of fire and pillar of cloud. We had come to suspect what fierce demand our translation to another land might might bode, but had not guessed he would allow our own brief flesh to bear the flame, become the cloud. And so if I go to the Wall Street Journal and I go to Scott Cairns, and they're both talking about the same event but in very different ways, 
which one is true and how do I know whether or not it's true? Like if, like if I can't take that standard of, well, it was flight 11 and it was 759. Like I can't take that and apply that to the Scott Cairns poem. It's not talking about that, but the fact that he, you know, what he's getting at when he talks about us becoming the cloud, that's not like a verifiable fact, you know? And yet the question is, is it something true or is it pointing to something true? Um, can I get, can I, can I do another example? Please do. So I, I, I just actually use this with some of our student leaders, uh, in training who are about to become small group leaders, uh, not to get too political. Um, but there was this there, we've been in a pandemic and there was this stimulus that happened back in April. Right. Uh, and if I want to find out information about the president and about the stimulus, uh, I, I can go and I can look up different news sources on on the internet. And there's one you can go to Fox News and and it'll tell you uh, you know Trump's name to appear on coronavirus stimulus checks sent to Americans. And it tells you, you know they they passed the the measure by this much to this much in the vote, and it's two point two trillion dollars, and the checks are for twelve hundred dollars, and they're going out at this time, and this is what the people said about it, uh, and also that Trump wanted to put his name on those checks, which was going to delay it by so many days, and it's just kind of reporting to you the facts, right? Uh, and then, <laughs> do you guys know the Onion? The, the satire news, yeah, the satire. right. Yep. Yeah, it's the satire news, right? Uh, and, and there was this hilarious article that they put out. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, Trump seeks to stimulate economy by sending rare autograph photo to every American. Uh, and it's just an article about how he thinks that, you know, he's going to he's going to bring back the economy from the brink because everybody's going to want one of these rare sign. And it's, of course, it's funny because it's not rare if everybody has one, but they're going to be worth so much money because it's him. Uh, and, you know, the article is quoting him like saying, look, I'm a pretty well-known guy. So these are going to get a lot of money, which is going to help everybody, you know, and, and I read those two things to people and, and I'm like, well, which one of these is factual, you know, and of course, the, the Fox News one is telling you the facts, but in the onion is not right. Like there was no rare autograph photo and there was like he, Donald Trump never said any of the things that they're saying he said. And yet, like as a satire and the way it works, people people laugh and it resonates as something true because it's pointing at something about the character of the president, um, which I'm not going to comment on. I'm just saying this is what, you know, the onion is saying. Um, but it, but it's saying something about the character that you can't just say directly, right? Like you can't just come at it and say, well, Trump is like, you know, proud because no, whatever, who cares? Like that doesn't mean anything. But if I say it in this way, you know, then it is not only funny, but it, it shows me something that that kind of head on way of talking about it really can't capture. I, I like your examples here because what they, uh, what, what they communicate to me is that we have this implicit knowledge of this. Like there are some people that don't know what the onion is and sometimes like run across like, Oh, they didn't know this was a satirical news. But if you know what you're dealing with, we have this implicit awareness of genre and, and we just turn that part of our brain off when we go to the Bible because of what we've been taught to do. And what I'm hearing you say is we gotta, we gotta turn that part of our brain back on just like we would anywhere else. Cause the Bible is using a lot of these same methods, even though they might be from an older, more ancient world, some of the same tools are being used in the toolbox. I mean, that's, yeah. And that's the trick, right? Because the, what is an implicit understanding has obviously like it's, it's changed. 
Uh, and so what would have been implicit to an ancient hearer of, you know, the story of Jonah, which could be a satire or whatever, uh, what, what strikes them as automatically funny is like, we, we don't quite get the joke. You know, we're, we're outsiders listening in on an inside joke. And unless we have somebody to help us, then we're not quite going to get it and we're going to distort it in all kinds of other ways. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I bring up these examples, um, just to say we, there may be something like that in the scriptures, but what is the the net result of this, right? When we turn everything into the wall street journal or to Fox news, or I was there, my wife's a therapist and she has this thing called the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, the DSM fifth edition. Um, and, and it talks about like one that I've used is oppositional defiant disorder, which just has pages and pages of analyzing and categorizing basically when kids have outbursts, you know, and they, they don't behave well. And I'll read that to people and then I'll read them. Do you know the picture book where the wild things are? Sure. Yep. Oh, oh my gosh. It's, it's brilliant. And it's, it's actually a chiasm. Did you know that Brent? Did you know that it's a chiasm? I did not know my, I don't, I don't know if my son's quite old enough for that yet. Check this out, pull it out. And the next time you read this book, pay attention to the frame of the illustrations. And you're going to notice that they start small at the beginning and they slowly creep up to getting bigger and they spread all the way out to one page. And then they start spreading across the second page. And in the center of the book, when the kid max, when he goes all the way into his revel, uh, the, the, the wild rump, it's just three full page spreads with no text and it's just picture and on the other side of that this the the frame starts to shrink back down it gets smaller and smaller on the back side of the book until it ends with a blank page and the story is all about this kid who is angry and misbehaves and he gets sent away and and he goes into this kind of like daydream of his own like anger and isolation uh, and then he goes full on into it but then suddenly he smells his mom's food and it brings him back and he realizes that he's lonely and on the far side of it, you know, he makes it back to his bedroom and the food is still hot and there's just a, you know, like perfectly white, blank, pure page there. Um, and so that is talking about the same thing that DSM is talking about. But the difference is the DSM is trying to diagnose and analyze and chart and explain. And where the wild things are is trying to communicate an experience with, you know, what you could call oppositional defiant disorder. And so my concern when it comes to the Bible is that... Uh, the net result of trying to make everything into the DSM five or Fox news or whatever is that God is the subject, right? And he becomes the thing that is there simply to be diagnosed and analyzed and charted. And so we have all of these like pages that we can say about him, like, well, God is omniscient and God is omnipresent and God is whatever. And like, while those things may be true, I'm like, we're missing all the parts of the scripture that are trying to tell us what an experience with God is like. And those are the things that actually have the capacity to like deeply resonate and, and change us. Um, and so can we please, can we please stop doing that? Um, yeah. So now Reed, when we were getting ready for this episode, you had, we were sharing notes back and forth just as we thought about like what we would talk about today. Yeah. You have this like statement that I want to, I want to read and I want to like read again. Okay, because I, I, it just hit me and resonated with me. You, you say this in your notes: all facts are truthful, but not all truth is factual. Yeah, all yeah. facts are truthful, not all truth is factual. And and you say that you, we know this, like deep in our bones, we understand this to be true. That's not something we have to be persuaded of. We actually know this instinctually. 
all facts are truthful. Not all truth is factual. For example, I don't think Reed factually has this oppositional defiance disorder, but there is an element of truth in that he is oppositionally defiant to Marty in, in your relationship. Is that? And I know this deep down. I know this deep down. How, how deeply I resonate with these things. That's... Oh my goodness. No, uh, I do. I do think we know this. Um, and I, and I think, you know, look at any of those examples that I just told you, um, like, and how they're conveying experience and they're not factual, but they're definitely telling the truth. And again, all facts are truthful. So it is true that, you know, Boston, uh, American airlines flight 11 left at seven 59. And and that's great. That's, that's true. Um, but the experience of grief and mourning, like the, that we, that we had like post nine 11, um, that is something that cannot be communicated by just telling us how many people died or telling us what time the planes left or how much gas they had in the tank or whatever. Or, you know, just think about the way that we talk about the things that are most important to us in our own lives. And if I were going to start telling you um, about my kids uh, or about my wife and what is deeply true of our family, uh, I'm not going to just resort to talking to you about like, well, you know, my son is this tall and his hair is this color and he has this many freckles on his face. I'm going to be telling you about experiences that we have had. And and at times, like I might be telling those experiences in ways that are, um, they might be embellished. Uh, they might be, I might be connecting them to other events from our life where they weren't directly connected, but there is some deeply resonant meaning in connecting them. Um, we've talked about Frederick Buechner before Marty and I have, uh, he's like one of my all time heroes and, and he talks about this phenomenon of, uh, in a sermon, it's called the seeing heart. And he talks about the fact and the truth and the difference. And, and, and he's talking about Thomas, uh, when Thomas is, uh, feeling doubt about the resurrected Jesus. And, um, you know, Buechner says when it comes to things in the world, you know, the fact of a mountain is that it's 14,252 feet tall and the average snowfall is, you know, 23 inches per year or whatever. Uh, But the truth of the mountain is like its exquisite majesty that really you only sense like not from those statistics, but when you're kind of standing next to it, or he talks about how the truth of, you know, a child, like we have, we have children, they sleep in their beds and all parents, not all parents, but parents tend to do this thing where they go in and they check on their kids before uh, they they themselves go to bed, right? And it's like the most precious moment of the day and your kids could never have done anything wrong in all the world in that moment, right? And, and the truth, uh, the fact of the kid is, like I said, Briggs has orange hair and he has freckles and whatever. But the truth of him is something about the preciousness of that. And Beekner says, it's that preciousness that if it ever came to it, you would give yourself... Uh, for them if you had to in a moment without thinking about it. That's the truth. And so then when he's talking about Thomas and Jesus, he says, you know, all his life, Thomas had known the fact of Jesus. He had known that Jesus was yay tall, that his skin was this color, that his beard was this long. Um, But in that moment in that upper room, when Thomas uh, puts his hand, you know, in the nail holes and, and says, my Lord and my God, Beekner's like, for the first time in his life there, he saw the truth of Jesus and not just the fact of him. Uh, and, and then the, the final point there is the fact is something you can see with the eyes, you know, and you can record it with data. But the truth 
uh, is something that we can't see with our eyes. He says we see it with the eyes of the heart. And so then the question when it comes to the Bible is, how do we best convey something that we can only see with the eyes of the heart? Uh, and, you know, I guess we could go bit by bit through the Bible, but it would take us a long time. But I, th- I think I could point to, like, look, when the Bible says it this way, you know, we've been reading Exodus at CCF this semester. And when it talks about Moses going up the mountain, there's that crazy, like, Marty, what's the what's the bit? There's like the like this, the walkway or the pathway. And it's like Ruby and some kind of precious gemstones. And he like, Oh, ascend. sure. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. But I, I don't know it well enough. I could speak to it, but yeah, I know what you're talking. I know what you're referencing. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, is that did like, did there appear like a gem laden pathway, like up into the sky? Like I, well, I don't know. Like I, I won't say one way or the other. Cause, but, but like I can resonate with, experiences with God where that seems to be the only language that is adequate to convey the meaning of it, you know, and not just the happening of it. Yeah. You have that statement in the notes I I really liked as well. Like the Bible is trying to not, not just convey happenings, but meaning like the Bible's like whatever you want to call it, God, the scripture, the text, the authors themselves, they're choosing the best vehicle, the best medium not just to convey the happenings, not just that something happened and give you the Wall Street Journal version, but the meaning of what happened, because that's the deeply resonant thing that's going to change us and impact us. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, there are a lot of people who could benefit from that meaning and we're going out and dying on the wrong hills, you know, Um, and people are missing the deep truth of it because we're so insistent on trying to prove facts that the Bible might not even actually be asking us to prove. Okay. Okay. So before we close here, Reed, let me just ask this question. So in the midst of all of this, which is wonderfully beautiful and poetic, and I'm sure some people are just like, oh yeah. And then there's other people that struggle. How do we know? Like, okay, so how do we know what's what? How, How, like, it was a whole lot easier before I heard Marty and Bema and Reed Dent and people talk about this. I just took the Bible as... I'm just going to take it for what it says. The Bible says it, that settles it. I'm just going to take everything as written. So now that it, there's not just happenings, but meaning, how do we even go about engaging this? Walk us through some of your thoughts on on that. I mean, my first thought is always to say, yeah, it's hard. Um, and I I know the discomfort that you're feeling. Um, but But the fact is, like, the Bible is this ancient thing from a long time ago that is many different kinds of things. Uh, And so there's, of course, a range of opinions and interpretations. And I think sometimes there's this, there's this view, uh, this simplistic kind of, well, you know, we're just saying what the Bible says and anybody else like who has a view other than that, they should have to prove it, you know, because we're somehow like, um, we have this special divine privilege of the golden tablets dropped from the sky and we're just saying what they say and you're the one trying to mess it up. But the the thing is that one of the things that I point out to people is, um, so we have this spectrum of views about how to read the Bible 
And the thing is, that view that's like, well, I'm just reading the plain meaning of it, that is itself a view on the spectrum. It's not somehow exempt from it. And not everybody has always read the Bible that way. In fact, I'm no like perfect historian or anything, but it seems to me a more recent development of modernism and like post-enlightenment and we have to prove everything because science and all of that kind of stuff um, that says, well, we need to show the fact, the facticity of it and you can only trust it if it's saying exactly what it says. Um, but long before that, people were reading like the desert fathers. And I mean, as you've talked about many times with the rabbis, like going back into, you know, just Judaism and the way that they grapple with the text, uh, it, it, it doesn't seem to me that it was just taken for granted that, well, obviously we just read it on its face. Um, and so just to point out anybody who's saying, just read it as it's written, uh, you are on a spectrum. That's a view along with all the other views. Um, and, you know, it's not just um, language that has to be translated then, um, because, you know, you guys know John Walton. Are you familiar with him at all? Yep. Lost World Genesis. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good stuff. Um, and he, he tells this story about how he was talking about the world of Genesis and the context and the culture and all that. And after the uh, the lecture, this woman came up to him and was like, well, why are you trying to distort it? And why can't you just say what the plain meaning of what it says? And John Walton's a very nice guy. So he's like, I didn't say this to her, but my first thought was I wanted to pull out my like Hebrew text scripture and say, here, you start, right? <laughs> because right. the Bible comes to us, obviously not in English. And so what I want to say is it's not just the language that has to be translated. Like we need translators of culture. We need translators of history and context, which is why things like Bema are, are really important. Um, and another thing that I want to say to people is we trust authorities on pretty much everything else, right? Like uh, if I'm going to build a, a rocket ship, uh, even if I had like an instruction manual that like told me the steps of how to do that, I'm going to want to consult with some authorities on that before I just, you know, start putting things together. Right. Uh, and so why do we somehow think like, where did that come from? This idea that we shouldn't have to consult with authorities on the scripture. Um, it is, I don't know if this is like a problem with Protestantism and like individualism and like, we don't need people to tell us. Um, but the fact is there are people who spend their lives studying, researching, like what is, ancient Near Eastern, you know, um, creation stories say, and what does ancient Near Eastern satire look like? And what is ancient Near Eastern poetry? And to me, it just seems like kind of an insult and a disservice to them to say, yeah, none of that matters because the Bible is somehow like outside of all that. Right. Yeah. I, I was having a conversation recently about somebody commenting on Genesis and, and, and the conversation I was trying to push was this like, okay, here's what the Here's what thousands of years of rabbinic tradition have come up with as they've wrestled with this text together in a network over the course of centuries. And the person was like, yeah, I just don't see that when I look at the Bible. <laughs> um, and it was like, well, there's this, okay. Um, but all, all these other people have looked at the Bible too for actually longer than we have. And so there's a there's an interplay. And that's not to say that that's always right and our conversation is always wrong. But man, is it a big, like you're saying, 
it's a big part of the larger conversation. Well, it's like somebody, you know, you have geologists who go to the Grand Canyon and they've studied every like, you know, stratum of the Grand Canyon and they know what all of the rocks and minerals are and they know how deep the layers are and they know about the rate of erosion over year by year. And then, you know, they say like, well, this is what all that is. And then somebody who's a tourist who's like never even been there before is like, yeah, well, I just don't see that when I look at it. Like, I don't, that's not what I see, you know? Uh, okay. (laughs) And, and there's a danger and, um, there's there's a danger though that is this kind of scriptural elitism right where it's like okay so you're telling me that i i can't understand any of the bible unless i have like marty solomon explaining it to me or unless i have some you know biblical academic you know scholar explaining it to me um and there's this line that i always come back to um from gregory the great and i'm paraphrasing here uh, but this is from like 6th century and and he said that the scripture is like this river Um, and it flows and as it flows, it gets deeper and here it's shallow enough for like a lamb to go waiting and jumping around in. But then down there, it's deep enough for an elephant to go swimming in. Um, and so what I want to reassure people and say, you know, the, the message of the mercy of God, um, of God's love for people and God's wanting to partner with people, uh, and the message of the kingdom, like, I, I think that those are, I don't know, I hate the word basic, but, you know, those are things that can be grasped without having to have all of the degrees and all of the scholarship. Um, but there is a deeper end for people who want to go there that just adds, it doesn't change the river. It's not like there's some different kind of water down there, but it adds depth to it. And so, like, I want to be fine with the deep end and I want to be fine with the shallow end. What I'm not fine with is people in the shallow end saying, no, the whole river is shallow. Like, there is no room for anybody to go swimming down there because that's not what it's like up here. You know what I mean? Right. Or the or the other way of the pool is only for the deep and, and there's no kiddie pool and there's no ladder and it's only for the people that are in the deep end. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Give it, give us this last example you have in the notes. Cause I really like this one. Oh yeah. Okay. So, um, maybe this would have been made more sense a little bit earlier on, but, um, when I think about experts, right. And why we need experts, like I, I, I do this thought experiment with people where I'll say like, okay, so imagine that you're living 3000 years from now. Okay. So you're more removed from the present moment than our present moment is removed from Jesus. It's 3000 years. Uh, and you know, you're on a different side of the world and you're like wandering around in the wilds of North America and you're doing archaeology and you dig up these things called Blu-rays and you've never heard of a Blu-ray before. Like you have no idea what this plastic shiny disc could even be used for. Um, But you dig them out and there's two of them and one is called The Lord of the Rings and the other is this uh, Ken Burns documentary miniseries called The War and it's about World War II. Uh, and let's say that, you know, somehow you find the requisite um, means to play this, like you find a Blu-ray player um, and and you pop these in and you have no referent for the events that these are talking about. Right. Like maybe there is some ancient, ancient history about a war in Europe. Um but, you know, you knew that there were battles and you know that there was, you know, the Axis and the Allies and whatever. But, like, you're not schooled in any of that anyways. And you you pull out these two DVDs and you watch them. And my question is, um, how do you know, like, how to differentiate one from the other? And how do you know if they're the same kind of thing? Like, if I should understand them the same way? 
you know, so if I watch the Lord of the Rings and there's like trolls and catapults and stuff and guys with swords, uh, and then I watch a video about the war and let's say we even go back like another war to like World War One where they were actually using swords and you've got guys with swords and catapults and whatever, but there are no trolls or dragons or anything like, do I just assume that they all operate on the same level? You know, do I assume that they're both trying to tell me uh, history in the same way? Uh, and how will I know the difference? And I need somebody who is a scholar and who knows not just in this case about um, American and European, European and world history, but somebody who knows about the history of English literature and fiction. Um, and, you know, the and again, like the when I understand the Lord of the Rings for what it is, like it doesn't make it somehow less true like it can still be telling me a very true story even though it's telling me it in ways that aren't factual um but yeah just just to say like if you were this far removed it would be pretty presumptive of you to just say well i know exactly how these should be read like this is just plain history so clearly back then there were trolls and there was a sorcerer and whatever just like there were these tanks and airplanes like finding this guy it's all the same thing and somehow they like mixed together um, no, we need, we need scholars. We need people who study to help us learn the difference, but I can still learn and enjoy from both of those things, you know, even if I don't know anything about them. So that was, yeah, that was the last thing I was thinking. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, I think a lot of people listening to this would be like, oh, well that would be obvious. Cause obviously the one isn't real, like trolls and catapults and middle earth, like obviously, right. but that's actually what we have a problem with people doing with the Bible when, yeah, when people are like, oh, well, a talking snake, well, that's obviously not real. We we immediately get our hackles up and go away. Well, you can't do that because the Bible is the. So uh, I think it's just a really good both directions to consider. That's what we're doing with the scriptures is trying to figure out and deal honestly with intellectual integrity, with some sense of objectivity, what it is that we're looking at. Yeah, and I think that's why the three thousand years is helpful because we tend to like when I think at a subconscious level we read the Bible and we picture it as having come to be like yesterday, you know, and according to the things that we would, the ways that we would expect stories to be told last week. Um, but when I think about myself, literally thousands of years removed from it, then it should give me a little more pause, uh, and, and saying like, it, it should give me a little more pause before I say something like, well, that's just not what I see when I look at it. Right. Well, this has been a blockbuster episode, I think. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, what can what would you expect when you get Reed Dent on the third line? You know that that famous Reed Dent. Um, but yeah, this has been this has been fun. We should do this again. That was awesome. So I've got a whole bunch of stuff in the show notes. I'm going to try to link to as many of the things that you talked about as possible. Uh, but do you guys, either of you guys, um, have any additional resources that kind of speak to this topic that we've been going over? The nature of truth, uh, how we understand the Bible, anything that you want to point people to? I, I know the one thing I'm going to say that I think Reed will help me find the exact titles on is Robert Alter has some great books on uh, the art of narrative and the art of trance. There's the art of, yeah, there's the art of biblical narrative, the art of biblical poetry, and he actually has a new one that just came out, the art of biblical translation. We, we love Robert Alter. Actually, I, I, I didn't like him because Reed liked him so much. And then I started <laughs> interacting with this stuff and I'm like, man, this guy's good. So... It's now a shared, a shared love there. It's, it's, it's a little bit, you know, more on the scholarly end. It's, it's really good. Another one on the, on the scholarly end is called, um, uh, it's by a guy named Meyer Sternberg and it's called, 
something about biblical poetics. Uh, I can't, you'll, you'll have to look it up and find it, but Meyer Sternberg is in the Robert Alter camp. Um, yeah, at a popular level, um, for people who aren't quite so scholarly, uh, your boy, Rob Bell, um, he's, he's got a good one. What is the Bible? Sorry, he's not your boy. We all know that there are things we agree with and things we don't agree with. So big disclaimer. Reed there, recommended it. Not me. Reed Dent recommended it. Some of these... <laughs> Some of these concepts that are worth exploring, um, and you don't have to agree with them all, but that lay it out at a popular level. His book, um, uh, I know Marty, uh, well, I, I won't say how you feel, but uh, Rachel Halevins, rest in peace. She, her book, Inspired, is actually, I've, I've used mm-hmm. that with people before, and it's it's pretty good with laying out some of this. Just with showing, especially with showing like the genre differences, because she will take different genres and like translate them into something a little bit more contemporary that we have more familiarity with. Um, but like with a biblical bent to them. Um, so that's a good one. And yeah, I think that would be my recommendations for now. All right. Well, I, um, Reed, I was going to ask you how people can get a hold of you. Uh, although I've recently learned that maybe in a fit of self righteousness, you have deleted all of your social media Whoa, accounts. Self righteousness, ouch! Shots. <laughs> if fired I had a dime for every end. fit of self righteousness Reed has thrown, I wouldn't have to do support raising. I can tell you that much. Wow, you should throw some <laughs> of those dimes my way then. Um, I, yeah, I, people can, so our campus ministry has a website, ccftruman.org. You can find my contact information there. Uh, it's true that I don't have social media because I'm terrified and I live in a cabin in the woods and I don't want anybody to ever know where I am at any moment. So that's, I'm growing a really long beard as we speak. That's, that sounds great. What color is your beard? Just for the record. It is grayer than Marty's is, which means that I am wiser than he. Uh, There is no truth to any of that. It's red with some gray. I'm (laughs) sure in there somewhere. I feel like people probably knew it was red just by it's, the it's reddish the fiery passion that you have <laughs> it's reddish okay all right all right well uh yeah so the ccf website will be in the show notes of course you can find reed's email there and you can send him all of your questions from this point forward okay so that should save us a lot of time actually <laughs> um so if you want to get a hold of marty you can find him on twitter at marty solomon i'm at eibcb you can find more details about the show at bamadestablishup.com so thanks for joining us on the bama podcast with special guest reed dent We'll talk to you again soon. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to this episode more than any episode of Bama I've ever listened to because I just want to hear my own voice. That's one of the things I've picked up from Marty is that like insane narcissism. So nobody doubts that, not for one moment. <laughs> Um, so yeah, anyway, that's, uh, did you hear me talking about Marty and his emotional, um, he heard that and he took umbrage to your story. Took umbrage. I thought we weren't using the queen's English here, Brent. You told me that we don't say those kind of things. (laughs) Took umbrage. Wait, so Marty, Brent was telling me you're going to do some midrash stuff in session six. We already recorded an episode on Iska and Sarai and all that Genesis 11 nonsense. Okay. Yeah. That's total nonsense. I've glad you're going to finally have to fully explain yourself. I I hope that I have the longest blooper reel of any Bama podcast episode ever. <laughs> that's my goal. Let's can we just run through all of my favorite Martyisms? You need to stop being so OCD like Marty. You can you can just listen. You know, was was man made for podcast or was podcast made for man? You can edit some of it out. It wasn't all gold. <laughs>